want to start here this morning, and I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences where you experience the fake thing, and then you experience the real thing, and there's no comparison. Like any sushi fans in here, anybody sushi fans, you know, we're in the Midwest, so not a whole lot of us, like I don't really trust it. Uh, I hate to be the the bearer of bad news for you, that uh, probably if you go to a, a sushi place and you order a California roll, you're not actually getting real crab, it's what they refer to as imitation crab, and I don't know really what it's imitating, some type of rubber slime and that type of stuff, but it's one of the things that we, we, we'd have. Uh, Every restaurant, every fast food restaurant right now has their version of the impossible burger. You know, the the, the burger that's like, hey, you're not going to believe this actually isn't beef. And I've never had one before. Perhaps you have, and that's true. Um, In your fridge, there might be a a bucket uh, of this stuff, or maybe growing up, uh, that was called, I can't believe it's not butter. Anyone ever have this in their home growing up, this, I can't believe it's not butter? Right, I can, because if you've had real butter and then you have this stuff, there's absolutely no comparison between the two. I was in the grocery store uh, this past week or so, and I was going down the frozen aisle, and I saw uh, these, just like, hey, somebody buy me meatless meatballs. It's just like an oxymoron. It's like, it's like if it doesn't have meat in it, just don't call it a meatball. Call it a, a vegetable roll or something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the meatless part is, but that's a thing. You know, our kids, um, we try to instill into them good eating habits, but sometimes all they want is like yellow food, right? They want their chicken nuggets, their French fries, that type of stuff. And so sometimes we deceive our kids, just going to be honest, and we ask them if they want dino nuggets, when in reality, they're not actually dinosaur chicken nuggets, they're sweet potato bites that just happen to look like dinosaurs. So we throw them into an air fryer, get them all crispy, and they're like, oh, these dino nuggets are delicious. We can't eat as many as you want, and that type of stuff. You know, it's funny because once you've had the fake thing and then you have the real thing, more often than not, there's absolutely no comparison between the two. And I can't help but think that sometimes that's where some of us might find ourselves in our faith and our walk with Jesus. That some of us have experienced the real thing, some of us have experienced the fake thing, and we say there's absolutely no comparison between the two. Some of us might be getting ready to leave faith altogether, and that's where you might be here this morning, because you're saying, I'm going to give God one more try, but I'm done kind of faking it. I'm done pretending that Jesus is real or whatever, but I'm just kind of about to quit because this whole faking being a follower of Jesus thing, I'm not that into it. Some of us, we're not saying, hey, I'm I'm, I'm not about to bail, but I'm in a different room. I'm zoned out. I'm not really sure how to unfake it. I've just been going through the motions for so long. That's just kind of where I find myself today. And others of us, we might be looking around and saying, man, am I missing something here? Is there something that I'm supposed to be doing, living, being that I haven't fully understood? Because the truth of the matter is, and I would agree to this, is that no one wants to fake their faith. That if faith is one of these things that's supposed to be vital and foundational to our life here and now, no one wants a fake one. That if we're going to have a faith, we want it to be real, we want it to be vibrant, we want it to be powerful, no one wants to fake their faith. And that's where we enter into the book of Acts this morning. There's this guy by the name of Luke, and he writes to this man who's wealthy, he's kind of prestigious, this man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, let let me give you the real deal here. Let me tell you about the reality of this man named Jesus. You've heard of the fake stuff. 
You've kind of had questions about the stuff that isn't necessarily true, the false gods. Let me give you the real Jesus. And that's what we're about to dive in for the next 28 weeks, is to encounter a historical account of the real Jesus, and not just that he was real, but what happened as a result of his life. You see, it's interesting because the Bible provides itself to be investable. And what I mean by that is you can go to it and say, well, is it true? You see, what Luke and Acts is going to do is not going to write to maybe uh, inspire you. It's not going to write to say, do you like Jesus? It's going to say, here was a man who lived, died, rose from the grave. And if true, then at a minimum, you ought to pay attention. For 2,000 years ago, something happened. It happened that transformed the world. And when I say it, what I mean is this guy by the name of Jesus. Jesus lived. He took his last breath on the cross after performing miracles, after giving these uh, teachings that upended the world, and then he walked out of a grave three days later. And because it happened, the church was born, and it's still here today. One scholar puts it this way, talking about how the early church, the first Christian church, if you will, got started puts it in these words. He says, humanly speaking, Christianity had nothing going for it. It had no money. It had no proven leaders. It had no technological tools for propagating its gospel. And it faced enormous obstacles. It was utterly new. It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerate world. It was subject to the most intense hatreds and persecutions. And yet, it could not be stopped. When you think about the who, the what, the why, the how come of the church, why we are here today, what happened some 2,000 years ago, the book of Acts welcomes us in to know and to understand. And today, we kick off this series. And so we're going to start here, our series in the book of Acts. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Yes, you heard that right. Series on the book of Acts, we're going to actually start in the book of Luke because the same guy who wrote Luke wrote Acts and he wrote them to go together. So we've got to make a quick pit stop. We're going to stop in Luke chapter 1 for a couple verses and then we're going to get over into Acts chapter 1. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. He says, many, more than one, More than a couple or a few, many, multiple, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, key term here, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I Two decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke begins. And it's not, well, once upon a time, there was this little Jewish lad by the name of Jesus. It's not, well, I was on my back porch and I was thinking and I had this great idea and I just want to tell you, no, no, no. He says, no, no, many people have taken it upon themselves to give us an account of the life of Jesus. 
Now, this is interesting because back then it was very expensive and time-consuming to give an account of anyone in history, even the most powerful and prominent people during the time of Jesus, Caesar, Herod, Pilate. We have very few collections of what we know, let alone in one thing in one place. And yet Luke says many people... Multiple have taken the time, the energy, the effort to write about this peasant who grew up a Nazarite in the region of Galilee who was crucified on the cross as a criminal. We're not talking about someone who was rich here. We're not talking about someone who was famous, but we're talking about someone that something happened wherever he went The places that he found himself, something happened. And Luke says, so that's why I write. I've got my eyewitness accounts. I've got other eyewitnesses accounts so that you may have an orderly account so that you may know with certainty that something happened. Something happened that every person needs to make a decision on. And let me remind us all, because I think sometimes we forget this, and this is also very important, is that the book of Luke, the book of Acts, was written 300 years before the Bible was put together. So 300 years before the Bible was collected and put together, boom, here it is. The book of Acts was written, done, and completed. What that means is that Acts and Luke were deemed reliable, therefore they found themselves in the Bible not the other way around. They're not reliable because they're in the Bible. They were reliable, they were historical, they were accurate of what happened, therefore they found themselves in the Bible. We can put it this way, use an illustration. Let's say you owned a famous painting of some sort, a Van Gogh, a Monet, a Monet, because I guess they're technically different, I think, right? A Picasso, a Pollock, your choice. You own a famous painting that's worth millions and millions of dollars. There's probably two places that you would want to keep that. Number one, in a museum. And number two, under a safe. Now let me ask you, if you owned a painting that was worth millions and millions of dollars, is it because you put it in the safe that it became valuable? Or is it valuable, therefore you put it into the safe in the first place? And so we can say the same thing about the book of Luke. Luke acts, acts, is that it was deemed reliable. It was deemed accurate. Therefore, we find ourselves here in Scripture today. So valuable that 2,000 years later, we're still wanting to know more about that extraordinary thing that happened. And dare I say, the extraordinary thing that can still happen in the life of us, in the life of our church today as well. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Told you we were going to get there. All right, here we go. Get out those Bibles. Get out your your notes. Follow along with us. We're going to have some fun. Here we go. Acts chapter 1 starts like this. He says, in my former book, so Luke talking about his gospel, the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. Underline, circle, annotate in the margins, Holy Spirit. Anytime you see Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, make note of it because there's always something going on. So the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
So Luke begins in the book of Acts, everything I told you back then about the life of Jesus, now we're picking up from here. And we know three interesting things about who Luke was in the first place. Number one, that Luke was a doctor or he was a physician, meaning he had a keen eye for detail. Number two, we know that Luke was a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish person, which gave him this outside-in, this kind of different view uh, approach of things. Because all of his, perhaps, friends, his families would not have been Jewish people brought up under the Torah and the Jewish covenant. They would have been trying to find how they were grafted into this whole thing called the way or Christianity or faith in Jesus. And number three, what we learn about Luke is that he was an eyewitness himself. Throughout Acts, you'll see the, the pronouns, I or we, because he traveled with the Apostle Paul from time to time. And so Luke says this. He says, I put all of this together so that you may know. So you may have an orderly account. But an orderly account of what? Is it to have certainty and to have proof that a book was written? To have certainty and proof that a folklore was started and that somehow it became true? Nope. I am writing to you an orderly account so that you may have the convincing proofs for you to know that a man was dead and then three days later he walked out of the grave. That's what I need you to know because that happened and this is the result of all of that happening and here's the why and here's the how's. You see, yeah, the miracles were important. The teaching transformed lives. But it all hinges on the fact that a man died. They put him in the grave and he came back to life three days later. Let's just put it this way. If a dude calls his shot and pulls that off, you should probably listen to what he has to say. And that's what Luke is saying. I want to give you an accurate historical account of what happened so that you might have certainty as you live your life. That's why Luke writes not to inspire. He does not write to kind of pull at your emotions. Luke doesn't exclusively write to set doctrine. He leaves a lot of that up to the Apostle Paul. He writes with a rhetoric to persuade and to convince you that what you are reading, in fact, happened. That's why you'll see general places. You'll see specific names. You'll see specific roads mentioned because he wants you to say, well, you could go talk to these people if you want. You could go visit those places if you do, do say, need to. He's trying to say, let me build this case because what happened, happened. And so we see this, our first note about the book of Acts, and it's very important, is that the book of Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. If you're a note taker, I'll explain what this means. But that the book of Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. Descriptive scripture is describing what happened. This guy went here, said this, did this, traveled here, talked to these people. It is descriptive. It can be confirmed. It can be denied, so on and so forth. Prescriptive is saying this is what should happen every time forward after this. And one of the worst things that we can do when studying the book of Acts is to pull out a singular verse and say, well, <laughs> I figured it out. This is how it ought to be because of what this one verse says. But you always have to compare it to the rest of Scripture because you might have an instance and you might think you like that and then like two chapters or two pages later, you're going to open it and say, oh shoot, this is different now. <laughs> Some of the details have been mismatched. Some of the events are, have, have occurred in a different process. The book of Acts tends to always be descriptive, not prescriptive. Why? Because it all hinges on the fact that something happened 
that changed the entire world. Verse 4. It says, On one occasion, while he, being Jesus, was eating with them, talking about his apostles, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There he is again. Then he gathered, they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Here he is, the Holy Spirit entering stage left. He was in our first passage. He's in our second passage. He's going to be in our third passage, and he's going to come up over and over and over again. So anytime the Holy Spirit comes up in the book of Acts, circle it, make notes of what's happening around it because the Holy Spirit becomes the engine in which the church moves forward. That without the Holy Spirit, none of this happens. Now sometimes for us, the Holy Spirit is kind of the forgotten member of the triune God for our lives. God the Father, God sovereign creator, we get because we can see that in the world around us. The Son of God, Jesus, our Savior, we can understand we're broken, we're sinful, and we need to be restored and redeemed. But the Holy Spirit is a little tricky sometimes. But the book of Acts is going to make it clear that without him, none of this happens. Without the Holy Spirit, none of this goes down. Without the gift of the Spirit, none of us are here today because the early church, the early Christians would not have gotten off the ground. But Jesus reminds us, let me remind you, where that comes from in the first place. He says that's a promise of the Father. That the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, hey, you just need to wait for me in Jerusalem. I'm going to be back and I'm going to kind of, kind of do a couple of things, but I'll be back. But I'm going to give you this gift. And let me tell you, this gift is it, going to be worth it. It's going to be awesome. It's literally going to blow your mind. And by the way, I have promised this gift to you. I told you about it. You're going to have this guy, this helper, this counselor. Don't worry, it's coming. But also, let me remind you that you need to wait for me to give it to you. You cannot create this. Because the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. You see, in the book of Acts, we're going to see people want to try to treat the Holy Spirit like like a what? Like in Acts chapter 8, there's this one guy, he practices dark magic, and, the, and some of the apostles come in, they heal this guy, and he's like, how, how did you, I know some cool tricks, but your trick, man, that was like super cool, teach me that trick, and they're like, yeah, that's not how it works. Holy Spirit is not some type of parlor trick, it's not something to do something for you, it's always a gift given to bring God glory, and the Holy Spirit fundamentally is a who, not a What? Specifically, it's the who. It's the promise of the Father given to live inside each and every person who believes that they are a sinner, saved by the grace of Jesus, redeemed by their faith to fulfill that great commission that Jesus gave us. In Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to to be baptized and to obey. This is what I have called you to. But in verse 6, we already got a sense that, that the early on apostles, they kind of missed the point. Hey, Jesus, is this the time where you're going to do that thing where you make us like the best again? 
Hey, you're going to restore us, right? You're going to give us power and prestige and money and political uh, acumen. This is the time, right? This is the time you're going to do this thing you've kind of been telling us about. You know, you're going to sit on a throne and you're going to have that big old crown with a bunch of jewels, but we can sit next to you and we all get littler clowns, but maybe have some jewels too and whatnot. Because some of us, that's why we're still here. Some of us, we've been waiting here, fingers crossed, that you would give us that power. You would give us that influence. You would give us that prestige. And Jesus is like... Oh, yeah, okay. Hmm. I thought it was clear. I thought you understood. But let me tell you again what this whole faith thing is about. He picks up in verse 7. So it says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you have your Bible, write in here, Thesis. This is what the entire book of Acts is all about. It's this one verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Underline, circle, annotate, witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 And then after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus says to them, I'm not giving you myself to bless you. I'm giving you myself to make you a blessing for the rest of the world. Because I'm about to bust this thing wide open that people need to get onto this team Jesus and you are going to be the people who do that. But in order to accomplish this, you're going to need to be uncomfortable sometimes. In order to get this done, things are going to probably step on your toes. In order for you to follow, you will need a power above and beyond yourself. And Jesus is just like, here it is. Here's me. Here's my spirit. And then beam me up, Scotty. He's out of there. And he just says, here's my spirit. This is what my spirit was given to you. It is a gift. It is my power, not for you, but for you to be a witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. So the Holy Spirit, we can put this note here, that the Holy Spirit is the power of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not a parlor trick. The Holy Spirit is not something given to you to make your life necessarily easier. It's not given for you to make your life richer. It's not given to you to have power like Caesar had in a political sense. It is a spiritual power for you to live out the who, what, why, and the how come of living as a witness, living as a disciple. Because back then, there was no strategic plan how to start this thing called the church. They did not have a carefully articulated, laid out 12-step process of how this was going to go. They had one thing. They had the spirit of Jesus. Will you obey? Will you listen? Will you follow or not? Because you are my witnesses. You ever witnessed something that just changed your life? You ever witnessed something that you couldn't really describe before? How many people in here have ever been to the Grand Canyon in person? Been the Grand Canyon in person? About half of us. I've been the Grand Canyon in person. It's crazy. Like you, 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 you see the books, the pictures, the paintings, the documentaries, the movies, and you're like, man, this is this is incredible. I mean, how big is it? How wide? How deep? How glorious and, and majestic is it? And then you go in person, and it's like, 
It blows your mind. I remember going to, to the Grand Canyon, I think it was high school, early high school, eighth grade, whatever it was, and we came back and someone was like, well, what was it like? Can, can you tell me, describe to me what the, the Grand Canyon was like? And my only response was, I can't. I can't tell you what it was like. I don't have words to describe the nature and the beauty and, 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 and the majesty of it. But I would always say, but you need to go for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. That's amazing. You go experience it for yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying. You get the Holy Spirit so that as you live as a witness and people say, what's different here? What's changed here? What's so glorious about this life that you are living? You get to say, you need to experience this for yourself. You get to experience this, and I am a witness. It's this indicative statement here in verse 8. When you receive the Holy Spirit, then you will become a witness. What that means is you cannot become a witness to the resurrection unless you have first received the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot receive the power of the Holy Spirit and use it for something else, but only to be a witness of the glory of God. And you cannot become a witness aside from first experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit granted to us in our salvation. Go be my witnesses and I will be the power for you to do that. The word witness here is the word martus. We get the word martyr here. Verse six, Jesus, are you gonna restore Israel? Verse eight, Go be martyrs. You're not going to be kings. You're not going to be queens. You're not going to be rulers. You're not going to be governors. You're not going to be satraps. You are going to be martus. Martus. Eyewitnesses, in a legal sense even, of what you have seen and what you have experienced. But eyewitnesses of what, we might ask. We get a hint in verses 21 and 22. At this point, Judas has hanged himself. The apostles need to gather a 12th member, and this is where we get this idea. What are we called? What were they called to be witnesses of? Verses 21 and 22, it says this. is therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The last three years and change, the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You are not witnesses of a book. You are not witnesses of a story. You are witnesses that there indeed was the savior of the world who walked out of a grave because if someone lives after dying, you should probably listen. You are witnesses of his resurrection, witnesses to the whole world. You don't keep this to yourself. You don't keep it to your city. You're going to go out and out and out and out and out, and I'm going to call you to live this way, to be on mission. Matthew chapter 28, yet again, in order for you to live, act, be a disciple of Jesus, you will need me living in you to live your life as a witness. You ever wonder, why do we have the Holy Spirit in the first place? It's for one purpose and one purpose only. 
that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is for disciples to live as faithful witnesses. Now, there's a gajillion, maybe not a gajillion, but there's, there's like a lot of implications that means to live as a faithful witness. Let me give you just a few of them here. But the Holy Spirit is given to you to live as a faithful witness. The Holy Spirit is given to convict you so that you may live differently and set out apart from the rest of the world as a witness. The Holy Spirit is your guide to make wise choices to live in kingdom obedience. The Holy Spirit does give you gifts and talents, not to be a blessing for yourself, but to be a blessing for your church and for your community. The Holy Spirit is a counselor that reveals to us the truth of the word of God and reveals the characteristics of God himself. The Holy Spirit is not just given to evangelize. The Holy Spirit is not just given for sanctification. The Holy Spirit is given so that we can be witnesses, witnesses of the transforming work of the gospel that transforms lives and homes and marriages and workplaces and communities. Why? Because as Luke says, that's the plan. That's the whole reason we're here in the first place. This is why we are here, to take our witness to the ends of the earth. You want in, he says? That's what it's going to take. So let me give you a quick synopsis of where we're going for the next 28 weeks. The next 28 weeks through the book of Acts. If you have your study journal, if you haven't grabbed one of these, grab it on your way out. It's got study material throughout the week. It's got room for you to take sermon notes. But if you go to the front page, that was the little memory verse card. If you go to the front page, go to this map. You can follow along with me. But let me give you, in the next 28 weeks, here's what we're going to cover. I'm going to give you the shortened version. I'm going to give you the ESV version. That's the Eric Standard version of what we're about to do for the next 28 weeks. It's all going to start here. And so here's where we start. We start in this place called Jerusalem. This little dot on a map, we made a little bit bigger here for you. For three years, there was this guy by the name of Jesus. He performed miracles, he gave teachings, he told parables, he kind of flipped the whole entire world upside down, and at one point he says, I could tear this temple down and build it back in three days, and they're like, this guy. And he's like, watch me. And so then it kind of gets out of control, and the Roman Empire is super fond of it, and so they finally get him killed off, and they're high-fiving each other, and then three days later, the dude's back. And they're like, well, that plan was spoiled. And he comes to his disciples and he says to them, you need to wait for me here. Do not leave Jerusalem yet. Wait here because I am going to give you a gift of myself promised from the Father. Remember, it's a who, not a what. And we're going to see this next week. 3,000 people will lean in and experience faith for the first time because they were here by the gift of the Spirit. And then they say, well, now what do we do? Well, we were told to take this outside of here, so let's take off. And so they eventually make their place up to this, uh, to this spot called Antioch. And there they are first given the word, the term Christians. It's not a church yet. They just call it the way. And it's a derogatory term, but they kind of embrace it. And then they say, okay, well, we made it up to Antioch. Now where do we go? I don't know. Let's just start going places. And so they begin to kind of loop around. They go past Cyprus. They eventually get to the region of Galatia. And at this point, things are going well sometimes. Other times, not so much. Sometimes they share the gospel and pe- people jump in. Other times they share the gospel and people jump them as a result. Like, I don't want any of that. And so then they begin to kind of head this direction. Do we go north? Do we go south? Do we go, do we go east? And they're like, I don't know. Do you know where to go? Do you know where to go? No, no, no. So let's go to the beach. So they go to Troas. They go to the coast of Troas and they say, if we got to figure this thing out, my time to people, let's go to the beach. Let's put our toes in the sand, figure out how this thing is going to start to happen because we're running out of money and we don't know where to go next. 
And there they receive a Macedonian call. The only reason it's called that because there's this place called Macedonia where they're going to go next. It's not super creative. They hop over the sea and they go to this region of Philippi. In Philippi, they meet this woman by the name of Lydia. And Lydia, she rich. Like not just rich, she's like rich, rich, wealthy, powerful. And she says, I've heard your gospel and I'm all in. And I will bankroll this entire thing. This is God's will for my life. God has blessed me in this way. Therefore, church, it's yours. You just let me know what you need. And she's cutting checks left and right. And so as a result of that, they're like, great, now we can take this to new places. They go to Thessalonica. They go to Berea. They go eventually to Corinth. They stay there for a little while. They make their way to Ephesus. And then at some point, they finally make their way back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15. And at this point, The stories are getting out. Peter and John are back there and they're hearing the stories. Is it true that people all over the Roman Empire are believing this? They're joining in. They're on our team now. And they're like, yeah, it's crazy. But they're not Jewish, they say. Yeah, they're not Jewish. They're Romans. They're Greeks. They're Assyrians. They're Samaritans. (laughs) Not Samaritans. Yep, Samaritans too. Well, uh, Paul, did you tell them how to get in? You know, it's cool that they want to be on team, but you tell them how to belong to the team. There's that little entrance fee. You know, the little snip-snip part? You tell them about that? And Paul's like, yeah, uh, they want to be on the team, not super fond of that part, and so we just leave it up to them, right? It's where the church faces its most difficult dilemma. Is the church for us, or is it for everyone? And the leaders, by the grace of God, decide... It's for everyone. The old is gone, the new has come. But Paul, you do it. You're much better at this. This is what you're doing. He's like, great, yep, and off he goes. And he goes all the way around. He started plants his churches. And at this point, the Roman government doesn't know what to do with him because the, 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 it's getting out there that this thing is taken over. And so we got to squash this thing. Okay, well, why do we need to squash it? Are they, are they hurting people? No, actually, it's the opposite. They're actually super nice and they're taking care of people. Well, are they stealing money from taxes and from Caesar? Actually, they're taking care of people that we can't take care of. So what seems to be the problem? I don't know. I just don't like it. So let's get them to stop the thing. Well, what is this thing to begin with anyways? Well, this thing is like, well, like you have to realize that, that, that you are broken and then that God sends himself in the form of his son. It's like himself, but it's not. And then he died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And then by grace, you get to be right with God and then he climbs inside of you. That's the best way I can describe the thing. Oh, and it's working? Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we just tell Paul to stop? Not going to work. We tried. He's not, he's not stopping. Okay, um, why don't you just kill him? He's a Roman citizen. Oh, blast it. Okay. So they throw him in prison for like two years. And while he's in Caesarea, he's in prison. He's telling anyone who he knows, hears about, he's writing letters, he's giving all this stuff to tell people to to push the gospel forward, and eventually then they send him off to the region of Rome because we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with this guy, we don't know what to do and make it, and so they send it to Rome, you guys handle it, and then the book of Acts ends. 30 years gets covered. 10,000 miles will be traversed. What do you do after you hear the stories? What do you do, not just after you hear them, and you start to believe them? 
What is your response to the convincing proofs that a man died, rose from the grave, and has given himself to live in anyone who believes? We put it this way. What does it mean to live as true, genuine, spirit-filled witness of the resurrected Savior? The book of Acts is going to make it clear that you have a choice to make, and there's two sides to that coin. And that coin is this. You're not the God I thought you were. Because on one side of that coin, you hear the proof, you read the accounts, and you say, you're not the God I thought you were. I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it. I'm not leaning in. That's for someone else. I'm going to go figure out my own thing. I want to be king and lord of my life. And looks like I give you the eyewitness accounts. I give you the details. You could check this. But if you don't want in, you can say, you're not the God I thought you were. But the other side of that coin, you're not the God I thought you were. You're even more powerful, more loving, more kind, more gracious, more, more welcoming. You have a sense for justice that I didn't even know about. You have a sense of compassion for things that I did not even consider. You're not the God I thought you were. And because you're not the God I thought you were, everything about my life needs to change. How I think, how I act, where I go, what I do, everything goes out the window so that my life can be transformed around you because you're not the God I thought you were. The Acts is saying that these two sides are so far apart. There is no safe house in the middle to kind of balance the two. There is no level ground for you to stand on to say, I'm not really sure. It's either you're not the God I thought you were, or you're not the God I thought you were. 28 weeks, 28 chapters, the next few months of study and prayer in the book of Acts. Three quick things as I wrap up the message this morning. I'll go fast here. Number one is that we see that Jesus builds his church his way by his spirit. We're going to see that happen in the book of Acts, and that's just as true today, that Jesus always builds his church his way. I heard one pastor put it this way, is that God has this way of drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. Because what Jesus, or where we see God do the power of the Holy Spirit, is he's going to build this church with some pretty broken people. Like, he's not going to use the best of the best. He's not going to use the number one draft picks. He's going to use normal people, normal Christians, but because of the power of the Spirit in them, they're going to be used in super normal ways because no one can claim stake to it outside of God himself. But Jesus always built his church his way by his Spirit. As he said in Matthew chapter 16, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail because I do it my way by my Spirit. Number two, though, we'll see this. Acts will make it abundantly clear that following Jesus will require something of you. If you are to lean in, if true, then what? We'll see radical generosity. We'll see an inclusion of others when in that time you wanted to make boxes and keep people out. There was this unthinkable obedience and humility to follow the Spirit, a willingness to put mission before self, a supernatural joy in the face of trial and death. That Jesus makes it clear throughout all of the Gospels that if you want to follow me, you deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you come. But he makes it crystal. This is what it's going to take. 
There's no middle ground. Jesus never lowers the bar. He never beats around the bushes. He says, if you want to be my follower, leave everything behind, pick it up, and come after me. This is what it will take, but you get to decide if you want in or not. And throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see people who took that to heart. We're going to read about a man by the name of Stephen who was the first man to ever lose his life for being a witness, a martus. We see that Lydia, we already talked about her, she gives up her entire fortune for the sake of the gospel to go to new areas. Peter and John, they're going to have to get rid of some of their old way of thinking, their old comforts of how they grew up to welcome new people into the fold of God. The apostle Paul is going to be asked to leverage his status and his prestige while at the same time give up his safety and his security. Barnabas is going to say, you're going to have to cut off some relationships so that this thing can continue to move forward. That Jesus will require something of all of us if we choose to follow him. And what that is, is that all that I have is for your kingdom. And number three, we'll close here is that we will see that the right step of obedience is always the next one. There isn't this detailed laid out plan. There was not a scroll from heaven that found down that that said you go here, then you do this, and you talk to these people. It was what's the next step? And oftentimes they had to listen to the Holy Spirit. They spent time in prayer, always in fellowship, in unity, in the word of God, seeking the scriptures, trying to discern, is this the will of God or is this my will? Because if it's my will, it dies. If it's God's will, it lives, and I follow that. But that the right step of obedience is always the next one. It's a beautiful thing. Something extraordinary happened. And something is still happening today. Why can't that be us? Welcome to the book of Acts. Let me pray for us. Lord, we lift up you and you alone because you and you alone are worthy to be praised. We thank you for your word. Your word that hinges on the fact that you were real, that you lived, that you died, that you rose again, that your word is you, and it's given us new life. Lord, that as we read through this text together, my prayer has been and will continue to be that you do powerful things. That the convincing proofs that we become witnesses of your resurrection, may we be open to your spirit in ways in which we can live out what we read here that there's nothing else that we need to know, there's nothing else that we need to determine or to decipher, that you have given it to us. But may as we study, as we read, as we pray, as we soak ourselves in this story of how your church started some 2,000 years ago and is going today, may you move in us in powerful ways. May you strengthen our lives as disciples. May you rescue people from the bondage of sin. May you transform communities and marriages and families. May you stir in generosity that makes no sense. May you stir in new ways of character and living that are so anti the world that people can't help but take notice. Lord, we bow humbly before you. We dive into your word because we are witnesses of that new life and resurrection. We worship you today. Amen.